0: Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove there's better ways to push and pull. Hey, whatever gets you through these days.
1: Hello, and welcome to well may we say a progressive podcast about australian politics this is episode 76 for tuesday 1st of january 2019 i'm jeremy sear and each week i'll be joined by different guest hosts to help me discuss what's just been happening to our country what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it and tonight's guest host is a returning guest host who is carefully picking off the white cat hairs on the microphone sock Uh, My beloved wife, Denise Pucco. Hello,
2: and I don't know what you're talking about.
1: Whose white cat would be dropping?
2: It must be your white cat.
1: Mm Hmm. (laughs) When when it's dropping, yeah, okay. So, we're going to get right into it. We've just had the Christmas period. You're obviously a long way away from friends and family, so you you got lovely messages from uh, everybody in Canada and so forth to... I did.
2: It's really nice to get messages on Christmas Day from, and and for me, it it extends out to Boxing Day because they celebrate Christmas, you know, with time zones. It feels like a day later. Um, And so just nice words of love and friendship from friends and family back home. It's, It's a lovely thing to wake up to.
1: Wouldn't you have preferred to wake up to messages from, say you were completely dependent on Centrelink to survive, uh, wouldn't you prefer to wake up to the messages that they were sending out to people on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day?
2: Uh, was the message saying, Happy Christmas, we're giving you a bonus payment?
1: You've got it in front of you. You know what the message said. Uh, what did the message say?
2: It says, Your payment has been suspended for not attending your activity. To restore payment, you need to attend a day of activity. Contact your provider on... Insert number here.
1: Did they at least end it with, Happy Christmas!
2: No, no, but they did send it out. It looks like the one that uh, the Guardian has here at 9am on Tuesday, December 25th.
1: That's pretty good. But at least you can then contact, oh no, wait, all of the Centralink offices, job service providers, everyone involved is shut over that whole period.
3: Yep.
2: Payment, uh, activities are cancelled. Activities are supposed to be cancelled. Centrelink has directed the job searchers to the job search agencies to cancel these activities. Um, A lot of the Parents' Next activities are on leave over the uh, school holidays. They're programs that often run at libraries and that sort of thing. So you couldn't actually bring your kid to this Parents' Next um, program even if you wanted to. And people were told that they weren't to attend activities over the Christmas period and then get this message.
1: Okay, I'm assuming that this was an automated system. There wasn't actually... Because there wouldn't have been anybody at like on Christmas morning sending it. it must, they've, got, they've basically unleashed an automated system. And they're not very good at those. It's like the RoboDebt one. It's like they've basically gone, we'll just unleash these automated systems. We won't do some sensible things like, I don't know, not having them send out any messages over the period when our offices are closed.
2: That seems strange. Why would you do that? But they've had such success with their automated systems in the past. Hmm. Hmm. I would have
1: thought that unless you were a government whose whole policy with Centrelink was to punish people for having to rely on it
2: Oh wait, like our government
1: Yeah, it does feel like a lot of the point of what Centrelink does to people is about punishing people on Centrelink for the benefit of daily telegraph readers who think that they need a kick in the pants.
2: But look, it's okay because Centrelink sent out a message reassuring people that while they had received a few calls, you know, a few messages left on their services about these (laughs) about this, that it was okay and all the automatic all the payments would go through as they were supposed
1: to. And no stress and, and everything's fine. Well, because people who've dealt with Centrelink know that Centrelink is at the bottom at the end of the day. It's a safety net, mm. and they they know that the settling's not going to kick them out the door, telling them they just have to starve to death because there is no way of them getting any kind of support. And or they just
2: have to not pay their rent this month. Or wait. Oh,
1: actually... wait. Actually, yeah, they've cut huge holes in settling. So, yeah. like, like, even if you apply for it, you'll stuck there for what four six weeks or so. Without they say six on weeks, nothing. but
2: that's an, an ideal situation. It's almost always like
1: eight to ten. What are you supposed to do in that period of time? It's mad, like. But and and oh, well, you're supposed to have a go. <laughs> That's right. If you, you have a go, you get a go. Have you a go wrong not- way. You've lost your job. You can't get a job, or you are um, a single parent. You have to look after your children. What are you meant to do? Um, the other thing that you've seen that they've done is they've added, they've taken the from first of January the waiting period for I think parental payment is from one to two years for immigrants and. Four years—it's up to four years now for new start for immigrants. It will
2: be so. If you are a new a migrant, if you get put on a um, permanent skilled or family visa after first of January, uh, two thousand nineteen, you'll not have to wait two years for a care payments, parental leave pay, as well as your dad and partner pay, and you'll have to wait four years for things like a concession card or a new start. So,
1: if you don't, if you have holes in a safety net, it is not a safety net anymore. You need to have a universal safety net. I know that it's really easy for the Conservatives to pitch to working Australians who are doing it tough, who are surviving, but working hard, but feeling like they're constantly going backwards, because they are, because salaries haven't increased in, in terms of cost of living, the only people who are doing well are the people at the top. And it's very easy for them to pitch it and go, hey... Uh, these refugees are coming here and taking your tax money and sitting on—or Im- these are not refugees; immigrants, either. Whichever they're sitting on your new start, they're taking money from you and sitting on their bottoms. And and we should shouldn't be encouraging people to come here and seek new start. But what they don't point out to workers is that cutting holes in the safety net makes people desperate, mm. and it forces them to take work from ex- where the, where people are exploiting them and under and doing it under the table. Without proper working conditions, do it, and that hurts workers. It, it hurts, hurts everyone. It does, but I'm just talking, in terms of the pitch to workers, like who who this is, this sort of stuff, this bashing news people on on social security is pitched at working people. It's like a way of going there. Are those people blame it on the people who are worse off than you.
2: Those people. I think what you started to say there is exactly right. Blame it on those people. Those people changes. It changes from generation to generation, from government to government. But there's always a those people that we blame it on.
1: And what you then have too is you have. But what they're creating is a a group of people in the community who can't rely on the safety net and therefore, to avoid starvation, are forced to undercut workers by taking Mm. under the table, badly paid, with no condition labour, which unscrupulous employers, if they can get away with it, will do. And that pulls wages and conditions down for everyone. Like, it is not just... If you're a selfish person and don't care about the basic humanity of... The people who are directly affected, who are suddenly finding themselves without any kind of support, then at least be concerned for your own self-interest. That people being creating a, a group of workers who are easy to exploit, and it's the same with just unemployed citizens. Mm. Like making new start harder and harder means that more and more people have to take under the table shitty job and jobs that are easy to be exploited, or are also willing to work for crappier wages. Like even, it, this all puts downward pressure on your conditions as a worker. It puts down pressure for everyone. The safety net needs, like think of it like, it's a net, we call it a safety net. Like the mental image is a trampoline. You cut holes in it, it's not a net anymore.
2: Absolutely, and so it, it's not exactly like the wait period was, it wasn't like you could come here as a migrant and get it the next day. It already was a two year waiting period. Which so... is
1: wrong, it should basically be, if you're here, you're entitled to a base level of being able to survive. Yeah. We shouldn't have anyone who, we, who, we, who goes to Centrelink and the government goes bad luck, starved to death. Like, that shouldn't be a thing that is possible in Australia. That you should never be in a situation where you're stuffed bad luck.
2: Yeah. And it used to be that uh, if you were a newly arrived resident, so if you have arrived before January 1st, 2019, you wouldn't have to wait anything for the dad and partner pay, the parental leave pay, and the care allowance. You would just have to meet the other requirements for it. So, for example, parental leave pay, you have to have worked for a year. So there is technically... um,
1: Which is also a weird system. If you're poor then you don't get this extra support.
2: No, so, and, and that's it. And, and, and there are some funny things with that parental leave pay. Like, what if you get pregnant while you're on leave, your parental leave already, and then you can't go back? Like, there's all sorts of, um, you know, funny situations where the government just should provide that 18 weeks to everyone who gets pregnant.
1: Yeah. Like, it
2: shouldn't, it, it's don't, not don't a worry. lot of money. It's 18 the weeks kids, at minimum
1: wage. The kids that are being born will then be net taxpayers over their lives and putting that money back. Absolutely. So don't worry... They will put that back, but it's important to be able to support them and, the, and their parents at the time. Like, well, and the all other of these holes hurt it's... all of us. They don't just hurt the... Per- it's not just like, there is a bad person. We don't want to... Screw them. I want that cash back, that, that tiny fraction of a cent back in my pay packet. It, it hurts you. It makes your pay packet smaller. It puts downward pressure on all the of thing, your conditions.
2: The interesting thing about it is, when I first moved here, as a, before I became a permanent resident, and when I became a permanent resident, I paid taxes. I paid taxes when I first moved here. but I paid a really high rate of tax for that first year because I wasn't a resident for tax purposes until I'd lived here for a certain number of months. And so the rate of tax you pay is quite high.
1: Yeah, it's not like immigrants okay. don't have to pay tax.
2: Of- um, and then after that, I was a, a resident and I still paid tax. So I still contributed to a system, but I wasn't allowed to have any benefit from that system.
1: Yeah, that's wrong. That's ridiculous. If you're paying taxes, you should at least... No, but it's even, even people who aren't paying it. the taxes, fundamentally... Anybody who, if you have people in the country Mm -hmm. who are basically able to have uh, the government turn around to them and say, bad luck, starved to death on the street, then that's where the country's gone to hell. Like, it, it should not be possible for the, the government should at least be able to find you food and shelter. Everybody who is physically here, we can afford that. And the alternative is that you have people being kicked out in the streets, people being exploited. It's monstrous and we should and can do better than that and it's not in anybody's interest except the really rich who don't give a shit and live in walled compounds where they don't have to interact with the rest of society sure for them it's great but for everyone else who acts in an actual society in an economy in a community where everything interacts with everything else this is a bad idea well,
2: but also fact things like that you can't qualify for concession cards until that four years. So if you are working, say you are working, but you're on a low income and your partner is at home because of supporting a child, you can't qualify for the low income health care card. So then if you need health care, you end up not going to the doctor. So things get worse. So you end up costing the medical system more because then you end up going to the hospital and being... Or, or, your, or your
1: child just goes with that medication they need that you can't afford. Like, how is it in any of our interests for, for us to be going, hey, some people in this country, it doesn't matter if their kids get really sick and we don't care. Mm. It's or idiotic. Or they
2: get really sick, yeah. It's, it's um, horrible.
1: Part of it is based on... Part of it's a result of feral organisations like the Daily Telegraph in Sydney taking every opportunity it can to demonise immigrants and refugees in the most foul ways that it can. So just before Christmas, we had... Um, The Daily Telegraph ran a bunch of anti-refugee stories in an attempt to try and link it up with Labour having a slight difference between it and uh, the government on transferring uh, refugees who needed medical care in Australia. Um, And it's a very, very... It's a sliver of light that you can see that difference. They ran a story claiming that uh, refugees or immigrants were being able to send money home. It was like, yeah, why, when they were coming here... After they've arrived in Australia, after having if they're if they're refugees or if they're immigrants, whichever one, if they've fled persecution, if they've moved out here to start a better life, why exactly shouldn't they be able to support their family back home? Wouldn't you, if it was, if the situation was reversed? I don't understand why that. Like, what they're trying to say is these people aren't really people you should be sympathetic for. They've got so much money they can send money to their families. But, I mean aren't most of the Daily Telegraph readers who have jobs providing for their families? Like,
2: wouldn't it be yep. the same? And What's their... Again, you also have the situation where people may be sending money home, but before they're sending that money home, they're spending money on rent, they're spending money on groceries, they're spending money on their needs, like clothing. Because you know they're,
1: they're paying pre- taxes.
2: Yeah, they're paying taxes. So they are actually contributing to the economy, and if they choose to send some of their money home to support their family, then so be it.
1: I think the implication, they were trying to say that they're taking welfare and sending it home, but I don't understand how anybody who's receiving... I mean, first of all, they don't qualify for Newstart. So what, yes. what is this welfare they're supposedly receiving? Um, but even if they did, New Starts like below, so far below subsistence now. It's $40 a day. You can't pay rent with it. Yeah. Like if they are somehow manage, managing to scrimp and save enough of that that they can send some home, I mean, they're miracle workers and they should be in charge of the national budget perhaps. who <laughs> Like what? I think so, Yes. Um, the other one, the Daily Telegraph ran, oh, but sorry, Morrison is now claiming that he's, that they're going to have their, their budget surplus in April.
2: The first one in over a decade. Who, who's been in government
1: for the last, what, five, six years? Um, Gillard Rudd. <laughs> who's doubled the deficit? Uh, I feel like that's possibly... Gillard the Rudd. No, no, since Labour, it's... Brilliant.
2: Oh, there are those other people.
1: <laughs> um... And and the surplus. It's, 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 uh, it's a bullshit surplus. It's by moving things around. It's an it's a such a such a fix. And it's the and they're basically following the IPA's suggestion of like, hey, wouldn't it be good if you can when just before you lose government you can say we deliver a surplus, we deliver a surplus.
2: Mm, so then when the next so basically you cut a whole bunch of essential services and then when the next government comes in and has to reverse a lot of the cuts you made like look been- Look, they drove up the debt.
1: Yeah. anyway the Daily Telegraph's next thing bashing refugees was this story they came up with uh, and I'll, I'll play you a bit on uh, from I'm sorry from Sky where they're talking to um, somebody from 2GB about the, the story and how it's going to outrage their, their readers but essentially the story is that the government had spent a certain amount which seems very high on hotels and luxury hotels some of them had a view of the harbor oh my goodness the refugees now the, the implica- I'll, I mean I'll play it for you but the implication here, Is that for some unfathomable reason, Peter Dutton's department has decided, out of the kindness of its heart, to be generous to refugees.
2: I actually feel like the implication is slightly different. I feel like the implication is that somehow the refugees are forcing Peter Dutton's department to put them up into these luxury apartments. Well, the
1: answer to mine is why and how could you possibly believe that that, that this government would do that? And the answer to yours would be how? How are they forcing him to put What law are they doing? What is this law that the government's going to change about them for? That's, well, look, let's play it.
3: The story says in tomorrow's Daily Telegraph that hundreds of would be asylum seekers have been housed in luxury apartments after being transferred to Australia from offshore detention centres for medical treatment. With one staying in a hotel for nearly three years at taxpayers' expense, the Daily Telegraph has learned that the government has spent, as Damien said, a whopping $1.4 billion on accommodation for medical transferees from Manus Island and Nauru over the past five years, and fears the costs will soar under a Labor-backed push to weaken border laws. Zach, you know how this plays out at your radio station, 2GB, when... uh, people are just battling to pay their own bills, the phones will go into meltdown tomorrow over this story, won't they?
0: I think you're right, Jane. I mean, at this time of year, everyone's buying Christmas presents, they're spending a lot of money. House prices in Sydney are, while they're coming down, they're still virtually unaffordable for most people. Rent in Sydney, rent in Melbourne, house prices in Melbourne are virtually unaffordable for most people. So for a lot of, you know, the average person who is struggling to get by with, you know, the bills and living expenses, to see you know, medical transferees staying in you know riverfront apartments or, or apartments with great views that would rub them you know the wrong way. And it wouldn't it's not a very good look. That's that's the long and short of it. It's not a good look. Um, as Damien mentioned, you know. I don't, I don't know what the middle ground is. I think these people have got to stay somewhere. And everyone, you know, most reasonable people would agree that they've got to stay somewhere and it's got to be, you know, relatively nice and have basic amenities. But $1.4 billion over five years or a harbourfront apartment, I think, is over the top. There's got to be a middle ground that we can find. And you're right, I think, I think with the prospect of Labor coming in as the next government, this, these costs could go up if more and more people are coming here. So let's find a more affordable option and I think that'll rub a bit better with the public.
2: What's really interesting about this is I feel this is a spin on the communication from a few weeks ago, earlier this month, where, or earlier last month now, where they mentioned that people were, who had been medically transferred from the islands were being held in quest apartments and not being allowed to leave. Part of the issue is they need to keep them in an apartment. They need to keep them somewhere with a cooking facility, with a kitchen. Those are only
1: because they won't let them out
2: because they won't let them out. They won't, they won't settle them in the community. They won't allow them to stay with family members in the community. If they do have family in the community, because these are temporary medical transfers in many cases, they don't want these refugees assimilating in the community. They don't want them to have any sort of comfort. They want to put them in, this sort of situation where they can continue to keep them prisoners.
1: With armed guards next yes. to them. So yeah, like like with the whole offshore processing thing, which is obscenely expensive. I think the people reading the Daily Telegraph have been sold this idea that all the money we're spending on refugees is going to them to make their lives better. Mm. It isn't. We're spending all this money to treat them like shit. Yes. Yeah, okay. There might be in this case, the department might have put them in some expensive apartments but only to fulfil its own idiotic idea of, of stopping them having any liberties. The solution, if you're worried about the costs, is to not do that. Yep. Same with offshore processing. The solution is to not do that. And the
3: Sky News story... Fears the costs will soar under a Labor-backed push to weaken border laws. So they're trying to say, this terribly
1: incompetent, wasteful thing that we're doing, which is spending a fortune in all of these ways... like. Everybody who's listening to this and presumably everybody's reading The Daily Telegraph is aware that Peter Dutton doesn't like refugees and has been hostile to them and like he's tough on them that's his whole line I'm tough on these refugees So in terms of the expense, there's two possibilities. There's the Daily Telegraph version of we're spending a lot of money to be really kind to these refugees that we're tough on mm-hmm. The alternative is that we're spending a lot of money because we're being tough on them and that costs yes. money. One of them makes sense one of them is insane. What the government's basically admitting is that the, their whole being tough on refugees thing is ludicrously expensive. So for them to then turn around and be like, we're wasting a lot of money being tough, the other side aren't gonna be tough enough so it will cost more. That doesn't make, God, any, it doesn't sense. make any
2: sense. It also it's interesting because again, it's it's blaming the victim in here. It's blaming the refugees, it's putting it's making them somehow at fault for the government's policy toward them. Well, it, which it obviously is. They obviously are at fault because they had the audacity to come here on a boat. They had the audacity to get sick in the first place. Oh, they're faking. It. They've they? got.
1: They've got a doctor to. to well, and that's
2: the other thing. If they, if we kept them in comfort, if we allowed them into the community, then more people would fake it to get back out, get over to Australia.
1: I mean, you've got to, you've got to trust politicians over doctors.
2: Absolutely, and I
1: think five years uh, of. Institutionalizing someone. Oh well, let me let me play. So we had a story a couple of weeks ago where the Australian newspaper was reporting that the president of Nauru, um, Baron Wacker, from his corrupt little regime, that you know kicks out the uh, the judges. Any kind of, of uh, what are they doing? They're prosecuting the uh, opposition parties. Basically, anyone who they kicked out no Doctors
2: uh, Without Borders. Or just they've been all
1: Yeah. Well, no, but seriously, they had like the the chief um, judge there. They kicked them out because they were going to find against them. Like, it's mm. it's corrupt as hell. Anyway, Wacker claimed that 40 Nauruan refugees in, who'd been sent to the US wanted to come back to Nauru, and so obviously the right have been running this as a, see, you say that Nauru is a hellhole, but look, these refugees want to come back here. Ha-ha, you must be wrong. Well, first of all, I'm not sure why we would believe Baron Wacker on anything, but uh, it is likely that there are some who want to come back, and there are two obvious reasons. So I'm going to play some audio now from organisations that were dealing with these refugees, one being a refugee organisation in the US, and the other being the doctors who were dealing with them.
0: Fleur Wood is the founder of a charity called Ads Up, which helps Australians living in the United States to assist resettled refugees.
4: Look, the vast majority of refugees that we're working with are really happy to be here. They're thrilled to have this opportunity to start their life. Very few people who've expressed that they're unhappy and that they want to go back to Nauru. There's definitely been some. One case we've had is uh, one refugee who was in love with uh, um, another refugee and is longing to be reunited with their, with their partner
0: of choice. There
4: are other people... Um, who've still got family on Nauru and for whatever reason their family can't get resettled here. There are individual circumstances like
0: that as well. Fleur Wood believes that post-traumatic stress disorder is also a likely factor in some refugees not coping with their resettlement. It's a theory that rings true for doctors like Barry Fatterford, President of Doctors for Refugees, who says she's not surprised that some refugees might want to return to Nauru.
3: The likelihood that um, many of these individuals have PTSD is quite high, certainly after five years of being effectively institutionalised, having your medications given to you, uh, not being told what those medications are, and then all of a sudden, with the stroke of a pen, they find themselves moved from Nauru and Manus Island and put in a location like the USA. It makes absolute sense that many of these people would be suffering...
1: It feels to me like there are a lot of stories like this where when the story comes out, there are people who automatically believe the story because it fits their existing prejudices. So in this case, if you were a person who believed the Chris Kenny version that Nauru is a paradise and actually the refugees are really comfortable there and uh, when they went to the US, they were going to have to work in the, in the you know good old uh, capitalist system in the US. They didn't want that. They wanted to sit on their bottoms on a lovely tropical paradise. So if that's your belief, that's how you've convinced your brain to view the whole thing, then the refugees want want to come back. Some of them want to come back. It makes perfect sense. See, it backs up your line, of course. See, they want to come back because it's lovely. If, on the other hand, you've taken in any of the information about how desperate people are to get out of there and how, and you've thought through how miserable it would be to be stuck there with no hope of escape, and if you've looked at any pictures of what actually Nara is really like, um, then the idea that anybody would want to come back there it makes you instead of going, oh, I believe that. It makes you go, there's part of that story that's missing. Well, there you are. That's the explanation, and it does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, people who thought that they were going to be able to be relocated, reunited with family and loved ones, would have taken it, and in the hope that they can then fix that problem. But when they found out that that's not going to happen, I mean, would you? Wouldn't you? If you were separated from your family and loved ones, oh, wouldn't God. wouldn't you pre- be prepared to go back into hell just to be with them? The idea of them being in hell alone?
2: The idea that they made them sign over their rights to their family and their children, some of whom have never seen their children because their partners were moved to Australia to have the children. And so they've, you know, the child is now one to two years old and they've never met the child and they've had to sign over that right to get into the US. I would absolutely understand that deep regret, especially when that paper's waved in front of you and you're told, sign this or you're not going. Or you're staying here. Like I would understand that deeper gut in needing to come back.
1: If you, if you and the kids were on Nauru, and I'd got to the US, and they'd sent me by myself, in the hope that I could bring you across, and I'd found out that, that there'd that was be find a way, you'd find a loophole, and ball. you were stuck indefinitely in that hellhole. I would come back to the hellhole to yeah. be with you rather than have you stuck there.
2: Yeah, no. I mean,
1: you'd still be stuck there, but rather than being stuck there alone.
2: Yes. And the other idea that, yeah, we have institutionalized these people. We have left them in this hellhole, left them in these camps, left them in places. Five years
1: of being in that situation <laughs> of having no control over what you eat, what medication you've given, any of those things, and then to be just well, you're chucked abused. in the US where you've got, what, 90 days of support and then nothing, and you're thrown in your ass, basically, to try and survive in a country which isn't kind to immigrants
2: no and especially now and especially with the children dying in custody the way that refugees are being treated there if i were there i would be so frightened
1: particularly if you spent keeping my five years of, ins- of being basically in custody yeah that breaks people like these people have ptsd these people are are institutionalized you find people who who've been in prison for a long time who finally get released and cannot deal with life mm-hmm. at that point they've they've been totally institutionalized and they go out and commit they commit a crime to get back in because at that point if you don 't actually help people rebuild their lives and you just throw them out after being in, in an institution for so long yeah that 's what happens that 's yeah. what human beings happen it 's what would happen to many of us if we that we were stuck in that situation. It does not in any way mean that the institution that they were stuck in originally was not cruel and breaking them. It's Absolutely more not. evidence that it has broken them.
2: Mm-hmm. It's more evidence that we are being horribly, horribly cruel to people.
1: Sadly, although the ALP conference uh, did adopt, uh, they're increasing the refugee intake, I think it was by 5,000 places, and they're increasing funding for regional processing. Uh, they have refused a full merits review of the coalition's fast tracking um, system and the injustices that come from that. So you don't get to have a, you can't ask for a review. And, most of all, they're still sticking with uh, AP the government. Here's Bill Shorten on
4: 7.30. I'd like viewers to understand where Labor differs from the Coalition, if it does at all, in this area. So let me ask you a series of questions. Do you support the government's policy of offshore processing of asylum seekers who attempt to come to Australia by boat? Yes. Do you support the government's policy that people who end up on Nauru or Manus Island will never be allowed to resettle in Australia?
0: Uh, we believe that anyone who comes here by people smuggler should be resettled in a third-party nation. Yes.
4: Does Labor support boat turnbacks and will that policy continue if you're in office?
0: Yes, we will. We will support boat turnbacks where it's safe to do so, which is existing policy.
2: I find the comment that when it's safe to do so really disingenuous. I, I don't think they turn back boats when it's safe to do so. I think they turn back boats every single time they find a boat.
1: Well, what's the check? Like, who? we're not allowed to oversee any of this stuff. It's just like, where well, they what's... just claim it's safe to do so. But what, what checks? Like, are the boats safe? I thought that the, we, they I have... thought the whole line was that they were leaky, sa- unsafe boats. Yeah, so, so are these boats unsafe or not? And what happens, the ones that they say, they say that these boats are all leaky, unsafe, and people are at risk of drowning. Okay, so those boats, you're taking the people and putting them on Nauru, but you're saying that you haven't had any people arrive. So... So then the boats are safe. Um, but do the people have water? Do the people have food? Do they
2: have anything that they need to get back? Are they crammed on there to an unsafe number? like there's...
1: I'm willing to... I oh God, okay. I'm going to hope and believe that the Australian Border Force personnel are at least instructed to send them back with water and provisions. And it's not like the US Border Force that go around in the desert actually physically destroying the water that people have left there for people crossing. Like, you know how they deliberately make oh, the desert crossing even worse? Like, yeah. by... what kind of human being goes around smashing up water bottles so that other people, human beings die of dehydration? Like, but I don't think our border force, are. I think they're evil enough to send people truck boats back to sea that aren't safe, That, but I don't think they're evil enough to refuse to give them, like, water, like, to just send them back without any provisions. Uh, any I don't know. That's me being an optimist.
2: For once, I'm the one being the pessimist here.
1: So there's Labor basically giving a good reason why we should all vote for the Greens, which reminds me. So this morning I discovered the existence of Gideon Rosner, who is the Director of Policy at the IPA, as in the far-right, you know, Rupert Murdoch-style, hardline far-right policy, economic policy um, group that has unbelievable influence over the Liberal Party. And the ABC, like they keep giving them spots on the drum. So talking of the Trump administration, and also in terms of the... Kicking people off Centrelink before Christmas thing—they've just kicked their you know, the, the whole government. He's just shut down their government, and he like he's now he's trying to say no, it's the Democrats shut down, but he's on audio admitting that it's his bloody shut down. So you've got all these workers who are basically being forced to work without pay, government workers or if other ones who are considered
2: a necessity, like Coast Guard. Yep. Yeah,
1: or just being forced to um, sit out and not have a job and to the point where the, the departments are sending out correspondence to them like how to deal with your, your landlord when you don't have any government. look if you, you just offer
2: wood. to paint the room i'm sure that paint a few apartments for them i'm sure they'll let you off on rent this month i'm sure that'll work for your mortgage company too and your electrical bill and all of those sorts of things oh did right. you need formula for the baby maybe you can just like bargain with the person at the
1: shops well he's the ipa director of policy on sky uh, the other week calling for an australian version of trump
0: What I'd like to know is when our Donald Trump moment is going to come. When are we going to have a leader who truly puts Australia first? When is the the, the great schism going to arise?
1: So just in case anybody wasn't sure how fringe the IPA is. Now that leads me back into, because the segue here is that we were just talking about why you should be voting for the Greens and not Labor. Here's a tweet from him just before Christmas in relation to the Labor senator in Victoria, Kimberley Kitching, saying that she is a Labor poly I would happily vote for. So just flagging, if you are going to be voting Labor above the line in any way, even as a second preference, maybe you want to instead go below the line and, you know, number your Labor senators in Victoria in such a way that you're not voting for the ones endorsed by the Donald Trump uh, yearning for IPA.
2: That's terrifying.
1: All right. It is terrifying. So this is the point in the podcast where we turn to you, Denise, and your glorious happy memories of 2018,
2: you know, I, I did some searching, and, and let me tell you, it wasn't as easy as I thought it might be to find some good political news for every state and territory.
1: Really? Yeah. From, from 2018, that from
2: 2018,
1: famously happy year. Yes. All right. What did you find?
2: Well, um, a couple of the key things: uh, Queensland uh, in October passed a law that would that would decriminalise abortion up until 22 weeks. And, and even after that, in conjunction with a doctor's um, doctor's consultation, and it would create safe zones around um, services. So around uh, termination services, 150 meter safe zones. Uh, that went into effect December 1st. So that is some excellent news.
1: That is indeed. And now you point that out. Of course, I should have been able to find some good news. I should have just gone to Lyle Shelton's Twitter and looked at everything he was complaining about.
2: Exactly, exactly. This is this is why we get those emails from people. What,
1: hang on, you mean you mean the ones that I'm still signed up for the ACL? Their nasty binary version now, just to see what the horrible cranks are doing. Did oh. you know that they they are they desperately needed another thirty five thousand dollars before you know midnight last night? Um, otherwise, their arbitrary deadline for scamming money out of their nasty rubes would have passed without that extra 35000 That's true. <laughs> I, love, I love getting their, their hideous, demanding more cash from their rubes oh, emails. They're, they're, it's always a new deadline that they desperately need all this money by.
2: In New South Wales, I did have a really hard time. Uh, my, my two things I could come up with... <laughs> this is
1: New South Wales where can they're likely to lose the election, which is why they desperately want Scott Morrison to stay away, but the alternative is the state, the, the New South Wales Labor Party.
2: Who are awful. What state? Um... Well, Karen Phelps won Wentworth over the Liberal candidate, which, Some, yeah, yeah. which you know, there you go. Also, the current... And, and,
1: and Malcolm Turnbull stopped being a politician in, in New South Wales. That's something.
2: And also, they uh, the New South Wales government did put a whole crap load of money for the next 10 years into their train signaling system, which is really important. <laughs> Modernizing it, upgrading it. Look, it's like I'm a train person. But it is, it is one of those sort of once-in-a-lifetime investments that no one does because it's not glamorous and it's not interesting. But... Sorry,
1: how are train signals not glamorous? Oh, they're not signals. I'm, I'm picturing like the ones that go up and... No, no, this is the computer system. This is all
2: that... the computerized back-end system that allows trains to run much more smoothly and safely. That is good news. It is very good news. In Victoria... They
1: spent money on necessary infrastructure.
2: Well, exactly. And it's necessary infrastructure that is going to take the 10 years to develop and is going to take... um, Isn't immediately visible.
1: Yeah, it's not flashy. It's it's no. necessary and important. Yeah. Yes. No, no, kudos.
2: In Victoria, we passed a whole bunch of, uh, we personally passed a whole bunch of tenancy laws that will improve tenancy for renters. Hooray! Um, those laws are going to go into effect over this year and up until June 2020.
1: What? No, no. We need these ones in because I've got a bunch of ones that I need them to do on top of those because they're not far enough. I know. I know, I know, the, I know the Real Estate Institute of Victoria is like, What? landlords are going to have to spend money up you know having smoke detectors and functioning cooking appliances and oh things in there the, in the house i what? know it is, it, is, Why? it is appalling surely poor renters should be forced to buy their to install their own stoves and ovens in, and, and you know what it's going to do though going to push up rents because they're certainly not being pushed up to the maximum that the market can already can endure already
2: oh wait they are yes well consumer affairs will be driving these changes and how they're implemented so at some point they will be doing some more consultation and we'll be keeping an eye on that and letting you know when that happens so to ensure that renters get further say in how these changes are actually implemented
1: uh yeah and and i want to push for more like fundamentally things like because we've we know people have just been given notice and they have to... Because somebody... somebody, what Previous guest hosts of the podcast who've had to deal with
4: mm. the scenario
1: where um, somebody's, the landlords just decide to sell the house. So they yeah. just suddenly have to find money for a bond, money for removalists. Yes. They have to find... Like, why on earth should that be a thing that is constantly shoved on the poor people stuck renting for their entire I life? I do not know. If you're, going, if you're a landlord and you want to give notice to somebody to get out, you should then fine. I understand that you should be able to do that. But you should have to give longer notice... You should have to release their bond and you should have to pay their reasonable removing costs. And and, and people say that's not fair on how, we're, how are landlords are supposed to have that money. How are renters supposed to find that money?
2: Especially when you've signed a lease and you're sitting there thinking that you're going to live there for X number of years or however long and they're going to sell it under you from in eight weeks. Um, Tasmania started to do some good things and sort of paused. They were reviewing birth certificates there and had put forward a proposal to remove gender on the public-facing uh, birth certificates. However, it didn't get passed before Parliament went on break and so now won't be discussed again until March 2019.
1: That's not really good news. That's more, a, well, they, they, they start they, they started going to do to something necessary and then they have delayed it for long enough for the religious right to um, whip up ignorance and hatred in the community
2: well and scott morrison has already said that he'll override any any change like that because they need that information which ignores the fact that that information will actually be recorded it just might not be in a publicly facing birth certificate
1: pretty sure the states do their own uh, birth records so scott morrison can go to hell
2: and across the country places started to follow the pattern of south australia and the act and make changes to the trans divorce laws which uh, required a trans person to divorce if they were in a same-gender marriage and wanted to change their birth certificate. Uh, New South Wales, Queensland, and Victoria all changed their laws this year.
1: Good. I would have thought it would be an automatic consequence of, of removing the gender requirement Apparently from marriage. Apparently
2: that there was a one-year implementation, so it would have gone into effect on the 9th of December, but Western Australia and Tasmania are sort of following up their rear on it.
1: Oh, okay. We need more good news.
2: More good news stat. Um. Well, there is a national bit of good news that is particularly relevant to me as a person with a uterus. As a person with a uterus, I'm very excited that the tampon tax is gone. So tampons on pads no longer have GST. And I think all uterus having people will be very excited about that.
1: Yes, it's long been ridiculous. And, and things like uh, condoms and stuff were not, it didn't apply to them because they were health products, but for some reason, this products to do with people with uteruses having menstrual cycles were considered not a health... I mean, oh, it's bonkers. It is absolutely bonkers. Almost as... Well, almost bonkers as bonkers as, you know, dental not being in Medicare. Like, how does that make any sense? The thing that got me about this one was... Well, let, let me go back to the marriage equality thing for a moment. You remember how galling it is that uh, Malcolm Turnbull likes to take credit. The Liberals like to take credit for being the government that finally passed marriage equality. You know, it was under us. Didn't happen under Labor. Happened under us. Because you were the last people opposing it. Yes. And when you eventually stopped, then it happened. But everybody else had got there first. Good for you for being the last people and eventually folding. So, keeping that in mind, so this is a tweet this morning from Kelly O'Dwyer, who is the current Minister for Women in the Liberal Government. All in caps. No more tampon tax! Exclamation mark. From today, the GST will no longer apply to feminine hygiene products. The Liberal Party will always be the party of lower taxes. And then there's a big a big um, image, which is the coalition government. No more tampon tax from 1 January 2019. GST will be removed from feminine hygiene products. Now, as with Malcolm Turnbull taking credit for marriage equality when they were the last people opposing it, let's be very clear. The only reason there still was a tax on those in the first place was because they were the people who insisted on it. Yes. They came to it after getting pressure from Labor, and there was a tweet this morning from Christina Keneally saying, uh, let's look at this tweet from Kelly O'Dwyer. One, Scott Morrison MP and the Liberals opposed this move. They were forced to it by Labor's leadership on the Tampa tax a year earlier. And two, the top 10 highest taxing federal governments in Australian history, tax take to GDP, were all Liberal, which is a good point. Uh, I would make one further point, which is that the ALP was only pushed to it by the Greens. Yeah. So let's be clear, as with marriage equality, the Greens were pushing for the correct thing to do long before it happened. Labour eventually, after much pushing, came on board, and then the Libs, being the final people to eventually cave, then take all the credit for it.
2: Well, that does seem exa- Yeah, that seems exactly like them, that seems right out of their playbook.
1: Yeah, so anyway, the important thing is that it, it's good news and it did eventually happen. I just, you know... It would be less galling if the people who have opposed it would stop trying to take credit for it.
2: Um, And my final bit of good news is this past year, a few councils have actually voted to change the date of their Australia Day uh, recognition and their Australia Day citizenship ceremonies. Um, They've then been stripped by the federal government from the ability to perform those citizenship ceremonies or citizenship ceremonies in general for playing political with uh, this such an important day. Um, but, yeah, there there is if actually... If you hold a
1: citizenship ceremony on any day other than January 26th, you're being political, and it's not political for us to cut all of your powers from you.
2: Yeah, and so we... a few councils have done it. Uh, one council, uh, unfortunately, Byron, has backflipped on it. Uh-huh. um after pressure from the government but it is starting to happen there is starting to be an actual movement people are actually starting to change this and make pressure around it so that's a, cool. that's a bit of good well, news.
1: we'll see over the next few weeks uh, because it's obviously coming up to our traditional uh january 26th uh, invasion day, day G- celebrations and cultural war bullshit from the media like uh, we've got to get people fired up and buying newspapers again because they're back from summer holiday but they've, they've lost the habit we have got to have something to fire them up um Two final stories. Uh, The first one is this insanity from the federal government, although I note that no federal government politicians seem to be willing to appear on camera for this story. This underwater garden
4: lies at the heart of our tourism industry, but some parts of the reef have been left colourless and damaged by major bleaching events. The Reef and Rainforest Research Centre says it's time for an intervention. It's a technical intervention that can reduce the stress on those corals. The solution, giant solar powered underwater propellers will slowly circulate water from a depth of 30 metres, pushing cooler currents onto reef flats. When the uh, weather becomes very still and very hot, it's always better to turn the fan on. The technology has been used in dams and reservoirs, but never before on a coral reef. The Federal Government today announced it will provide half the funds of the $4.5 million project.
0: trying to do something in in a small area that may give us data and information going forward for the rest of the Great Barrier Reef and the environment.
4: Eight massive fans will be installed over a square kilometre at Moor Reef. It's a popular tourist site with up to 120,000 visitors annually. This shows that Australia is taking its, its position as being the host of one of the Seven Wonders of the World very, very seriously. It's hoped the first of the fans will be in the water by March.
1: Isn't that the classic conservative approach to these things? It's like smash stuff up, particularly the national environment. Smash it up, wreck it, but then, like, try to... Preserve like in a zoo or something, a small part of it. So look, the Great Barrier Reef is huge, yes. but we're going. To, there's a little touristy bit right down here. Not you know the whole thing is a touristy bit, but th- this particular bit where we're going to take a little bit and try and artificially cool it. And that'll be fine, and then doesn't matter that we just screwed the rest of the echoes. It can't possibly have any on, you know, on flow on effects or anything and like that. Like,
2: never mind. In the, the water. Yeah, exactly. Never mind the the moving around of sediment and all sorts of uh, of things. Will that airflow actually damage the reefs? Because the reefs are quite delicate.
1: Will pushing the warm water down into the depths <laughs> cause other ecological damage? Yeah. We'll,
2: have we really thought this through? Um,
1: no, are, no, no. Sorry, that, that's we, not a mystery. No, we haven't.
2: <laughs> are we just going to be able to keep? moving, putting more big fans in the water? Like, this seems... Well, I mean, that's the
1: solution to um, climate change. All we need to do to deal with climate change is just build more air conditioners.
2: Yeah. You know what? If it's a hot day, just turn on the fan.
1: Turn on more air conditioners. Oh, God. Yeah. That that way, that can't possibly create some kind of feedback loop where it gets worse and worse. I don't know what you're talking about. And the last good news is that the, the worst thing that could happen this year would be for Scott Morrison and the Liberals to somehow slither their way back into government when the election happens. For them to somehow be able to sell this idea, we've run a strong economy, and also, if you vote for Labour, you will get swamped with diabolical refugees coming in here, being all, like, foreign and stuff. If they manage to snake in on that bullshit, that w- that's the worst thing that can happen. But to do that, they really need a bit of clear air to sort of reset, because they've ended the year with the Andrew Broad um, sex scandal with the... Um, yeah, the the story where they're trying to portray the the woman who he was pay, the the sugar baby he was supposed he was supposed to be providing like there's an uh-huh. exchange that happens in that relationship and she was demanding the cash quote to that but the conservatives are trying to portray that as blackmail um, and that he he was giving yeah yeah um, and she's like no you you pay the amount that we'd agreed to or or I will go public with it and anyway so instead of that they he referred it to the Australian Federal Police were like well we can't really do anything about these messages from Hong Kong anyway yeah that was not a good ending for the Liberals. So they really want to start this new year fresh. Absolutely. And so I'm very grateful to an old friend of the podcast for making that more difficult for them, Peter Dutton.
2: Hooray! So over the last
1: few days, he's come out and had a giant spray. Look, I don't want to hope that there's another Lib spill on the offering, any offering, and I don't really want to hope that the Libs goes to a fourth leader if that fourth leader is Peter Dutton, because even though I'm optimistic that Peter Dutton would lose. I was also optimistic that Tony Abbott was going to lose, and he didn't
2: and my final good news story was going to be that we didn't get Peter Dutton as a prime minister. However, I felt that the like upside of that of who we did get as the Prime Minister was not actually an upside. Yeah. so it so was, the choice was between yeah. the
1: two two brutal immigration ministers who've been the cruellest refugees yeah that that was what the Liberals offered us anyway. The Liberals are extremely annoyed with Dutton for his whole... So he came out with a spray against Turnbull, and but he was also being sort of promoted in the Murdoch uh, tabloids, pictures of his family down at the beach. Like, very much be done the way of we're presenting this person as a awesome. new potential leader. Like, if he's just coming out to have a spray at Malcolm, why all the sudden shots of his family by the beach? Like, this is very hashtag libspill, which... What I hope from it is that it has the effect that many of the conservatives being uh, quoted uh, in this Guardian article on uh, Monday were saying that uh, you know that these MPs lamented the lost last chance at a reset, uh, others questioned his timing. Everyone is saying quiet for a reason. No one wants to remind people of what we're not. We have an election in the next five months. Worst case scenario, in the next three months. There was absolutely no point to this now. We're all trying to move on, but some just can't seem to help themselves. Labour will have a field day with this, and it's entirely our own doing.
2: But if you look at what
1: Dutton actually said, it
2: is really hilarious. I am the first to defend the legacy of the Turnbull government.
1: No, he's not. Yes. Well, I mean, Malcolm Temple's the first to defend the legacy of the Turnbull. I, I did like that Dutton was accusing him of not having a political bone in his body, which sounds like a thing that actually, like, his is intended as an insult, mm. but is actually a backhanded compliment. But well, it's not accurate because Turnbull is entirely political. He's just shit at it.
2: Yeah. He, one of those things that's, you know how they say anything before the butt is a lie? Yeah. Malcolm is charming and affable, but. <laughs> like, then he goes on to say he doesn't have a political bone in his body. It's not a criticism, But without political judgment, you can't survive in politics.
1: Well, I mean, they're not wrong about Labor having a field day. Tanya Plibersek released a statement saying, 2018 had ended how it began, with the liberals at each other's throats. It's like the worst Christmas lunch ever, with relatives fighting. It's like listening to the kids squabbling on the back seat of your long drive to your Christmas holiday. Except if they were my kids, I'd pull over and make them walk. (laughs)
2: Well, the final thing that I I really appreciate that that Dutton said was that we went from a three-word slogan under Tony to 3,000 under Malcolm, and our achievements weren't effectively communicated. Yes, that's
1: the problem. That's the problem with the Libs. It's that their achievements aren't being communicated.
2: Yeah, and so, but it's good because Scott Morrison is going back to the three-word slogan, the fair dinkum power, the fair dinkum immigration, the have-a-go, get-a-go, which is have six a go, words. get-a-go, but, but it's two words. It's two three-word three yeah. triplets. Like, he's big on those three-word slogans.
1: Yeah, the Liberals think that every voter is an idiot. To be fair, like, that's the only way they can get people to vote for them, by people being idiots. Like, well, there's no, well, you could just be a, a hateful xenophobe, but I think that's pretty idiotic too. Is there a genuine, not idiotic way, reason to, to vote for the Liberals at this point?
2: Uh, you're rich.
1: Ah, rich and selfish. Yes. And, and you are confident that you have the ability to separate yourself from society and live in a walled compound, so it doesn't really matter if, if civilization exactly. collapses outside it. Yeah. And that you're not dependent on it. Like, that's, that's still nuts. That's still Atlas Shrugged sort of thinking of, like, yes, we rich people will all go and live in a canyon with each other, and we won't need any people to, like, we will be able to stay rich just sitting here. We're not, our wealth isn't built on the backs of other people's labor or what do they do in that canyon? Like they'd have to start, you know, cooking for themselves and making stuff like.
2: Maybe they'd find some migrants who could do it for them.
1: So they can't, but they can't actually go off just amongst themselves. They need to bring their wealth is built on stuff. Like wealth is only comparative. Like it's anyway. Anyway, I'm sure that that is a, a powerful reminder to anybody listening to this podcast that maybe we shouldn't vote for the liberals.
2: Mm, I think it is
1: (laughs) for all the liberal voting members that to this podcast that is probably enough for now let's get this podcast edited and out I think my new year's resolution for this year is to try and edit the podcast faster because god it's been taking me a while so Denise thank you very much for coming back it's been lovely having you back
2: and I'm happy that I was able to you know scrounge up some good news if there's more good news from the year that we missed please tweet it to us at the well may we say twitter I'd love to hear it we'd love to talk about it um, yeah, that would be. It'd be great. good to focus on it, and we could have like a bit of an addendum next week.
1: Oh my goodness! Yeah, the good news from listeners: so tweet at Will me say that would be lovely. Thank you, everybody who has been supporting the podcast on Patreon. Uh, you are how the podcast keeps going. Very, very necessary and very helpful. Uh, and thank you to everybody who has promoted us on Twitter and also promoted us in the iTunes store by rating the podcast uh, positively. So thank you, everybody. It's. We've got a big, exciting 2019, hopefully a 2019 with good news, and not a 2019 where, you know, after the election, we then all sort of sink deep into a, a, a stupor of melancholy and, and depression. Hopefully it's a good year, but we'll be doing everything in our power to try and, and push towards that outcome. So thank you everybody for coming back, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. See you later. Bye. Bye.